Hello and welcome. This is Jonah Steinberg. I'm a Jewish chaplain at Harvard and the director of Harvard Hillel, and so glad to welcome you to this conversation about the themes week by week of our Torah readings. And I am so glad to be joined for this week's conversation by a wonderful member of our Harvard community, whom I will introduce in a moment. First, as to our Torah reading, to make our theme this week rebellion, as it manifests within the community of Israel, is somewhat irresistible, because just as our Torah gives us the parade example of rebellion in the person of Korach and his dissident band of discontented Levites bridling at the singular authority of Moses, present-day Israel and its parliament is giving us well, pretty much the same, even to the point of the possibly outgoing prime minister invoking the persona of Moses and the divine quashing of Korach's rebellion in his denouncing the upstart, not to say ragtag, coalition that has as its sole unifying purpose, if one can call anything about it unifying, the ending of the present leader's longtime hold on power. How did God deal with rebellion against Moses, our master? The Prime Minister of Israel asked rhetorically just a few days ago. And so, yes, here we are with our theme this week being inevitably rebellion. This is not generally a political podcast, albeit the episodes here have looked at temporal and timely issues. So the purpose of this present conversation is less to take a side than to observe a phenomenon and its resonance with themes and tendencies that run deep in our tradition and in our people through the ages. With me to venture this is Avishai Ben Sasson Gordis, who, as a doctoral candidate here at Harvard and a frequent educator in our community, covers the bases of Harvard's student and teacher for this conversation. Also, uh, about this being a twosome, while a good many students in our Harvard Hillel community follow the debacles of present-day Israel quite closely, it seemed appropriately merciful, and perhaps I will admit a bit protective on my part, not to put any one of our undergrads on the spot in a moment when not only observers of Israel, but the country itself in terms of its leadership is puzzling through, well, I think the technical term is a balagan. Um, as to Avishai, I am always happy to have him on the spot, to which he is superbly suited, Avishai, as I've said, is a PhD student here in the Harvard University Department of Government, where he studies the political theory of the democratic military. He is a research fellow at the Beryl Katzenelson Foundation and at MOLAD, the Center for the Renewal of Israeli Democracy. Avishai publishes research and opinion pieces in Hebrew and in English on a variety of issues, mostly in the area of Israeli politics and national security, and I recommend highly following Avishai online wherever and whenever you can hear him or read him. Avishai is married to Talia, and with their daughters Ela and Aluma, they intend to return to Jerusalem once Avishai completes his Harvard PhD. So, Avishai, presuming that followers of this present podcast series will generally be tuned in to goings-on in Israel, 
but also will be glad to hear a certain degree of learned synopsis, let me start not with the most basic informational question, what is going on, but rather with the somewhat deeper philosophical question, what the heck is going on? Or to put it in Hebrew, mala azazel, that is, let me ask you to give your own account as you see it of the facts behind the facts. As we observe a coalition emerging that brings populist liberal Yair Lapid together with Islamist Mansur Abbas and Kipa wearing right-winger Naftali Bennett as the notional and seemingly any moment now actual first prime minister of the bunch, maybe the real question is, what the heck is causing what is going on to be going on? And is one right to read it in terms of a distinctly Korach-like rebellion against the longtime figure of leadership who has as much as claimed a Moses-like mantle? So first of all, Jonah, thank you very much for having me today. It's always a pleasure to have our conversations and to be able to talk about this moment with you is a real delight. Um, and thank you for this really rich opening salvo. Um, it, there, there's a lot there in, in what you just asked me. So let me try and maybe um, come at it in pieces, if that's all right, um, if that's all right with you. So the first question, I'll, I'll list out the questions I think were being, were being asked by this moment and then try to, to talk a little about each of them and maybe we can expand later on. The first question is a technical one, which is what what is going on? And then, as you astutely put it, what the heck is going on tries to reach a little deeper. And there I have some thoughts about what is what is causing this or what may be driving this moment, but not in terms of one thing leads to another, but in terms of a narrative or or a meaningfulness to this moment that goes beyond the mere political conjecture. And then finally, um, is the question of how this relates to our understanding of the Parsha and what is going on in the Parsha. And as you said, this is not merely an intellectual exercise in the way we sometimes do, where we try to read our current events into the text of the Torah, just and not just, but as a way of relating to the Torah. But, but as a result of Israeli politics being what it is and the way it draws on Hebrew and Jewish texts, um, there is a real way in which this Parsha and this Parsha occurring when it's occurring is informing people's understanding and interpretation of the current moment. So I think all of these are great insights on your part, and I want to slightly take these one at a time and, and see where it gets us. So to the question of what's going on, you mostly uh, covered it. Um, after a political crisis that has persisted for about two years, initially precipitated by Netanyahu's, um, Benjamin Netanyahu's um, legal troubles um, and his hopes of securing a coalition that will allow him to escape those troubles in some form of um, legal immunity and not just political ascendance, um, his rivals have finally gotten it together between them to set up a government that will allow them to replace him. And the way they have done it is they're relying on a, mon a legal monstrosity that um, he and Benny Gantz, his centrist, main centrist rival in the last round of elections, 
um, created that creates this alternate prime ministerial office. You get one prime minister for two years and another prime minister for another years, uh, for another two years. Um, this happened in the Israeli past, most recently in the 1980s, when there was um, um, a draw Shamir between the Paris, yeah. exactly Shamir leading Likud and Paris leading Labor. Um, the two of them created a rotation government, as these are typically called in Israel. And the first time around, they held to their agreement. The second time around, Paris violated the agreement and tried to, to usurp um, Shamir. Um, although I think then he was not intended as a rotational prime minister, but he still tried to, to usurp him um, and failed. But what they did this time around, they created a binding legal mechanism to enable this. The reason being Gantz did not trust Netanyahu and as events unfolded, it's, he seemed to have been correct in not, not fully trusting Netanyahu to hand over um, the government after a year and a half. Netanyahu dissolved the government and went for another election where he didn't achieve um, um, a decisive uh, division of, of power and was forced to rely on other forces, including legitimating um, as a coalition partner, the Islamic movement. So now what we end up getting is a rotational government between Yair Lapid, um, a centrist, liberal, somewhat populist politician, um, formerly um, an opinion journalist, one of Israel's most influential, if not the most influential, amazingly adept in, um, in framing what Israeliness is about. He used to have a column, a, a weekly column called what is Israeli in your eyes? My Israeli be'enecha. Um, and that for a very long time defined Israelis. Um, and between him and Naftali Bennett, a right-wing uh, religious, although in Israel uh, typically referred to as the T light, light religious, lightly religious um, politician, um, a nationalist, but one that I think to American uh, listeners might fit well in a version of the Republican Party that no longer seems to exist in which you could be liberal on certain issues, but an ethno-nationalist um, in a security hawk on others. So the two of them and the other parties comprising the coalition are right-wing parties and left-wing parties in one Islamist party. That's what's going on. What the heck is going on, I think, is a story about um, the Israeli social contracts and contract and its dissolution. Um, so regular followers um, of, of Israeli politics may have noticed this is not my chokma uh, or not my chap. I've taken this from a wise from a wise man. Um, is that Israeli politics sometimes veers between who is the more reviled group, the Arabs or the ultra orthodox? And the reason this happens is because these are the two external groups to Israeli Zionism. Israel for very long was ruled by um, mostly secular, mostly Ashkenazi, and completely only uh, exclusively Jews who were Zionists. And then you had the groups that were on the outskirts of this, the ultra-Orthodox, the Chaladim, and the Arabs. The Arabs consisted, um, who are mostly overwhelmingly Muslim. Um, they, the Muslim, the um, Arab-Israeli citizens comprise about 20% of the population. The ultra-Orthodox have been rising steadily and now are at 13% and slated to rise even more in their share of the population. 
Um, and the social contract was basically something along the lines of, we serve in the army and therefore we get to call the shots. There is some minimal power sharing framed around patronage. That is, the ultra-Orthodox are allowed to maintain a high degree of autonomy um, in, and not serve in the military, and they support the government in return for exemption for military service and, um, and um, welfare support. Many ultra-Orthodox in Israel don't, don't participate, especially men, don't participate in the labor market. This has become more and more problematic over the years. Um, and resentment among the Zionist, mostly secular public towards this arrangement has grown. And towards the Arab population that doesn't enjoy, the, did not enjoy the power sharing agreement so much, resentment grew as a result of um, people conceiving, of, uh, Jewish Israelis conceiving of Arab Israelis as, um, as a fifth column. And for a very long time, this uneasy but stable social contract persisted as these groups grew in influence and as uh, the hegemony of Zionist, um, the Zionist part of Israeli society declined and growing polarization that meant that the ultra-Orthodox were increasingly aligned with the right, especially under Netanyahu, um, this arrangement could no longer hold. It led to a political stalemate it led to social resentment. It led to um, to growing disaffection, even within the Zionist camp, so so to speak. Um, resentment grew and solidarity declined, partially as a result of intended campaigns, but also as a result of these structural tensions. Um, there was a large group that had a strong interest in being aligned with the ultra-Orthodox and their interests. And Israelis on the left increasingly sought, um, increasingly, yet I would say insufficiently sought um, some sort of alliance with um, Arab Israeli citizens. Um, this is sort of the background to this. The, over the past two years, and especially since the beginning of COVID, we have seen how the withdrawal of the state from these autonomies out of the center, out of the places, sorry, not out of the center, out of the places where um, this old, original social contract doesn't exist, the withdrawal of the state from these spaces have led to increasing costs. In the Arab sector, this led to more violence, more crime. Arab politicians have been asking for more enforcement and more state presence in their communities and not always receiving it as a result of all sorts of um, pressures. Um, and among the ultra-Orthodox, what we saw was especially throughout COVID, a lack of ability of the state to enforce its will that culminated in the Mount Mehron disaster um, at the end of April, during which the, um, in the Lagba Omer celebration at Mehron after um, ultra-Orthodox Haredi politicians resisted uh, restrictions on the number of attendees, um, a stampede formed 49, 45, I think 45, um, Men were killed. It was exclusively men. Almost all um, ultra-Orthodox along the various shades of this. Um, over 100 people were injured. And um, ultra-Orthodox politicians prevented um, an official fact-finding committee from forming, um, which caused a lot of resentment within the general Israeli public, but also within Haredi society itself. Um, the ultra-Orthodox society, I, will, I might switch back and forth between the term Haredi, which is the Hebrew term for the ultra-Orthodox community. 
Um, and then a conflict in Jerusalem and Gaza starts, and then the Arab Israeli, the cities in which Arabs and Israel, Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis live together, um, erupt into violence that such has not been seen since the founding of Israel in 1948, um, causing a sense of resentment on the one hand towards Arab Israeli citizens from Jewish Israeli citizens. That's one thing that happened. Um, on the other side of, of the spectrum, um, Arab politicians and, and leaders of communities pointed out that this has been a long time coming with the fraying of, of the stability of these communities. All of this comes together to create a strong sense that the state needs to reassert itself in those spaces. But in order for the state to reassert itself and to do so not as a violent move, not as an external move, people need to feel some sense of belonging to that to the to the larger political community. But for that to happen, there needs to exist a new social contract that I am hopeful that this government is capable of framing. Now, where this meets um, Parashat Korach on, um, you know, on, on the difference between what is happening and the what, a heck, what the heck is happening, on the what is happening, as Netanyahu puts it, it's easy to read the moment as a moment where upstarts, as you, you well put it, are looking to unseat the just um, the justly appointed or the effective or some might say even the God-chosen, the divinely chosen leader of the people of Israel. That's one way to read it. And certainly some people are choosing to read things this way. On the what the heck is happening, um, the story of Korach can be read, and we'll talk in a moment, I'm sure, about the Midrashim, as a, as a question about what consists of legitimate challenge. It's not a denial, or at least in the eyes of the sages, the story of Korach is not a story about how any challenge to established authority is illegitimate. Instead, it is a story about what kind of challenge is legitimate. And one way in which we do it is, are you, or, or to understand this, is are you actually, as a challenger, looking at the well-being of society as a whole or and trying to, to remodel a story about how we're governed? A story is, is this a story about how a select few is going to govern us, or is this a story about how all of us together can govern together? Um, if you do so authentically, that might be a legitimate challenge. Whereas if you do so in bad faith, then something else might be going on. And that's an interesting, I think, way to develop the, the connection between Korach and the Korn moment. Yeah, it certainly is. You know, re relating to the idea of the fabric of Israeli society, if you like. I know you're familiar with, speaking of Midrash, of the rabbinic interpretation by which Korach is imagined as instigating his or beginning his rebellion with a series of somewhat infuriating Talmudic style questions to Moses, beginning with, let's imagine a shawl, a talit, made all of sky blue thread. Does it need special sky blue techelet tassels as prescribed at the end of last week's Torah reading? So beyond a clever segue from that reading to this, the, the deeper idea there seems to be a question of why a people that is all holy requires especially distinguished holiness people or special leaders, God-selected leaders, perhaps, as you've said, like a Moses and Aaron. So you've said something already about who is considered integral to the fabric of Israel 
so to speak, and what that means in terms of what outstanding leaders are presumed or expected to look like. Um, but I wonder too about the hazards of a people or or agglomeration of, of people of peoples in which everyone may fancy her or himself a special sacred thread. Our, our tradition certainly encourages that view. In fact, I frequently encourage that view among our students, uh, but it manifestly comes with challenges, especially as regards joining in anyone else's project or submitting to anyone else's leadership among the people. So what of a fabric made all of sacred thread? Um, how does one tassel such a fabric, so to speak, in terms of uh, in terms of cardinal leaders, in terms of, of of corner holders? Yeah, first, I think it's worth stopping for a second and appreciating um, the rabbinic effort to make the challenge by Korach um, a challenge and not just uh, and not just a call for for his own power, but actually putting it in the strongest possible sense. It is, up to, to me, it's obvious. I don't know if it is indeed obvious um, that Chazal were sympathetic, that, that the Darshan, who, who, whoever wrote this Midrash, was sympathetic to the idea that a people that is all holy can at least puzzle about this idea that it needs a holier than leader. Um, so, so I think the first thing to appreciate is that this sentiment in itself is not far-fetched. And, and Moses and Moshe, Moses, doesn't have a good answer. His answer is an appeal to divine authority, right? He does not give a reason in his response to why you would still need a tassel that is sky blue. He just says you do. He gives you the legalistic answer. Yeah, state geschrieben, as it as 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 our Yiddish-speaking ancestors right. might say. There it is in the text, black on white, and so it is as it is. Yeah, it is right. He he doesn't he doesn't have the sophistication, or in this midrash at least, he does not enjoy the sort of sophistication that that Korach brings to the conversation. And I think that's worth noting and thinking about. And to me, I think the question of good faith and bad faith makes a big difference. Because Chazal then go on to say, or, or the Darshan, Chazal, he, the Darshan then goes on to say on a different part of this story that what really got Korach's fire started wasn't this highly theoretical problem about, um, let's call it democratic equality, to, to translate it into modern conceptual terms. I'm a, I'm a political theorist. Today we talk, in my field, we talk a lot about, about democratic equality as one of the mainstays of, mainstay and, and ideals of modern liberal democracy. But they think this is not about, entirely about this. This is a story about being, um, being passed in line. That um, the sons of Levi, their, Levi has four sons. Um, and as the pecking order goes, Korach expected to be after Moshe and our own, after Moses and Aaron, um, but then gets skipped over when the time comes to, to elect the, the chief of the Levites. Um, so, so one part of this is ha maybe had Korach been making this claim, not as somebody who would benefit from this moment, but as somebody who, um, who is making it authentically, there would be something to his claim. That's one thought I, I want to put out there. But I don't think it's actually necessarily 
Um, as answers go, it, it, it's a bit of a cop-out. It's a bit of a cop-out for two reasons. The fact that some, the person who asked the question is not entirely clean-handed and they're asking doesn't necessarily make the question bad. This is the same annoyance some of us feel, I think, every year when we get to the uh, Wicked Sun during the Haggadah. Where, where we ask the question and we hear the and we recite the answer, but we're left with the sense that maybe while we're um, we're exiling the wicked son and leaving him in Egypt, um, we might owe it to ourselves to answer the question nonetheless. Um, so I think that doesn't do away with your with your question, and and I'm, I I I want to leave the discomfort in place. I don't want to resolve it entirely, but I will say this, which is Korach makes the populist claim, which is that there is a true people and those in power are not representing it. And the people is holy and therefore, um, the people are holy and therefore do not need a holier leadership. Um, and that claim is often in reality, not just not in theory. In theory, it might work, but when when put into practice, more often than not, it's a vehicle for authoritarianism. And this is something we see all around the world among populist leaders. That one of the ways in which um, political scientists characterize populist leaders or extreme or extremist leaders in the current movement is that they make a claim to represent a true people, um, sidelined by nefarious elites. And if it were truly the case that that was what they were doing, that's one thing, but rarely is it the case that such populist leaders end up representing these people. And when you go out into the axis of populist leaders that the West has been encountering over the past five to 10 years, let's say, um, and many, uh, like here I will, I will say, um, it, is often it is often claimed that Netanyahu at least mimics some of these claims, whether or not it is for the benefit of the, the, the citizens of Israel is a separate question, um, but he does make these claims for true representation of a true people. Um, something problematic is going on. You should suspect people who claim to truly represent a people and, and therefore they should be the leaders and not others. Yeah, speaking of that sense of recognition or or seeing oneself in the in the person of the leader, I've been puzzling this week over a midrash in in the collection Tanhuma that picks up on an earlier instruction to Moses: take the Levites, kachet haliviim. We we can focus a bit later maybe on that verb take that also figures at the beginning of of our, our reading this week. But there, speaking of the ritual of their sanctification, sanctifying, dedicating the Levites for service in the in the tabernacle. And this Midrash imagines that Korach, after he had been shaven in the purification rite for the priests, went around among the people and they didn't recognize him anymore. Korach had been effaced individually as it were, by becoming part of the sacred order of the priesthood, as then constituted. And when his friends did figure out who he was, they said, who did this to you? And the answer of Moses contributed to sparking the rebellion. Um, perhaps there's something there about the necessity or specter 
of self-effacement that comes with holding an office greater than oneself. Um, I think of Yishayahu Leibovitz, a Jewish philosopher, saying that the holiness of the commandment of tzitzit, of the tassels, is not a given assumption or status, but rather a task. And so I'm wondering about that balance between distinctive characters, Lapid, Bennett, Abbas, Netanyahu, and the manifestation of a job. Um, I mean, of course, leadership involves charisma, but perhaps the rebellion at present has, as you've suggested, a lot to do with some of Israel having had too much of a particular character in, in leadership. Um, and so I wonder about, about that balance and, and how you see it playing out in the moment. That, that is such a fantastic question. Um, before we dive fully into it, I, this, I find this Midrash puzzling, at least in one way. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm flipping. No, that's fine. As I, as I say, I have been puzzling over it. So I'm, I'm happy to have there some helpful so much, questioning. It is such a rich Midrash. But one question that I have in, in reading and thinking about this Midrash is, why should we expect the people of Israel as a whole to be familiar with Korach? Right, it reads as if, this Midrash reads as if the people who are puzzling over who he is or, or wondering who this guy is and then realizing it's Korach and, and, and getting angry about it are not just his 250 followers, but the people as a whole. It's interesting. It suggests that, you know, you might think from the story to present that the people knew only Moses and Aaron, maybe Miriam, you know, but this suggests that they knew other, well, and then the, the, the 12 who are appointed as the heads of the tribes who then ventured last week into the land to scout it out as, as, the, as the spies or scouts. So we've had, you know, people of name uh, mentioned along the way, but this suggests that there are other people who have not yet been named, who are known figures among the people. Um, right. and, and, and perhaps have factions too. Uh, you know, you see this, I mean, as you well know, perhaps gestured at uh, with names like Datan and Aviram popping up sort of out of the blue or out of the woodwork or out of the fabric, you know, all of a sudden uh, sticking up as, as loose threads, as it were, um, in, need of some, in need of some resolution as we focus on the principal leadership of, of Moses and to some degree Aaron and, and to some degree Miriam. Um, but but that's that that's what I see in this the the, the suggestion that um, there were recognized people, uh, much as you know some of these people I've been watching Western news coverage of what's going on in Israel and of course they have to play a lot of catch up explaining to the rest of the world who these figures are who now pop up in the world of Netanyahu who's held the you know the premiership for 12 years and you know they can't expect that listeners of the BBC or Al Jazeera or 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 Fox News or or, or MSNBC know who Bennett and Yair Lapid or Mansour Abbas are um, but all of a sudden, these characters emerge on the scene. And then the question is, as they join this coalition, do their followers recognize them anymore? You know, you hear accusations, especially with regard to the Islamist party joining the coalition of, is that treason? Is that somehow betraying uh, Arabs regionally or, or locally? Or is it, you know, or is it a, an absolutely wonderful new hope for Arab participation to a greater leadership degree in in Israeli in Israeli democracy, um, and so I think this question about whether one is recognized, you know, first of all, 
that there are more people than may have been named who are who are noteworthy or people of note to factions or, or, or known among the people, at least the newspaper readers or whatever the equivalent was at the time of Parashat Korach. Um, and then also as they join fun or as they take on certain functions, does that involve an effacing of their original characters? Do they just become functionaries? Um, and is there in that some, you know, some occasion for bridling for, for feeling, well, wait, what about me qua me? Do I just get subsumed now? Do I have to play the part of the regularly scheduled, you know, Ashkenazi centric, as you've said, largely, you know, the, the, the Knesset has remained, I mean, in my view, has remained a body in which these various colors, um, ultra-Orthodox, Arab, you know, are a little bit, um, I don't know, to say fringe is a loaded word in this context coming just from Parashat Tzitzit, from the, from the, from the scriptural prescription of the tassels. But um, the question of how integral, um, you know, how, how, how natural a part in the view of the people, does one have to homogenize or can one, can one see a cultural mosaic of, of power holding in Israel, um, so to speak? So that, those are some of the ideas that are popping to mind as I look Th at the This is great. This is great. And I think the connection to, to having to learn this whole new cast of characters, it's like showing up to, to a play or to a new season of a show you like, and suddenly it, it reintroduces or introduces so many characters that have either not been there before or weren't typically terribly prominent. And you, and, and you need to quickly get the audience with you on board. Um, and how you do that with as few brush strokes as possible. Um, so that that I love that um, metaphor. Um, so kind of reading back and forth between the Parsha and, and current events um, or the Midrash and current events, I think one interesting thing to me about that Midrash about Korach being effaced, being, being stripped of his individuality is that he he doesn't, he fails to understand something. And I think this is something that the story keeps, that the, the, the Darshan keeps telling us is that Korach really doesn't understand what's going on on the other side of, of the podium, so to speak. Um, if we think back to the beginning of Sefer Shemot, um, the book of Shemot, um, where Moses gets, gets appointed leader gradually, he tries to resist this appointment. He repeatedly says, this is not who I am. This is not what I am good at. I do not wish this upon myself. Leave me alone and let me live my life here in Midian or, or wherever it is. I don't want this thrust upon me. Um, and our own too pays a dear price on, on his way to ascend into the Kihuna in the form of his two sons who, who die on the first day of regular operation of the Mishkan. Um, and one of the things there, and, and what happens subsequently is that he is prevented from fully expressing his personal grief, right? The most personal grief he gets is to not enjoy the, the sacrifice, his piece of the sacrifice that day. And we later get told in, in, in halacha, um, in, in the Jewish law, that um, the priests can't fully mourn their, their family members, especially the high priest. So they have been impersonalized in a way that Korach, in, in their process of elevation, there's no denying that they were elevated, 
but they have understood that this is not about them and their needs and their and, and what it is that they wish to uh, quote unquote other midoshim draw this connection but pocket out of their position Moses later says this, right? And later in the parsha, he says, nasati. I have not taken a single donkey off of them. Um, I have not personally benefited off this job. Part of what's going on in Israeli politics right now is an argument about who, who and how um, benefit off their leadership positions, how they do so, and whether that's legitimate. Um, Korach does not understand this. Korach thinks, according to the Doshan, and, and this is a thing that took me a little time. I'm sorry, I'm opening a parenthesis here. Um, but, but something I've, I've taken time to warm up to. At first, you know, you first growing up in, inside um, some sort of um, Jewish education, you first get taught these midrashim as integral to the text. You read the text in light of these midrashim. Then later, you realize that the two are not one and the same. And to me at least, some disdain or, or uh, caution towards Midrashim came at this stage. And what happens in the third stage, this, this return to an appreciation of, of what the Midrash does, is not an appreciation for the Midrash as the text, but an appreciation for the Midrash in most of its forms as a very acute and careful and nuanced reading of the text. It is, it is the reading of people who are in a certain way, not the only possible way, very, very keen and, and, and very cautious and, and are careful listeners um, and readers of the, of, the, um, of the Torah. And what happens in this story is, I think they capture what you said, which is a person like Koach could not have gone through this process of elevation through effacement, through becoming a civil servant, really. Um, and suffered through that. So he needs to make this um, this intellectual and possibly intellectually dishonest move where he says, if everyone's special, or if nobody's special, everyone is special, or if I'm not special in the specific way in which Moshe and Aaron are special, I am not special, um, and find this way of reasserting himself. And, and you read through that piece of Midrash, it's lovely. Every piece of it is, is, is great. So there's a moment in which in the sanctification process where they are lifted up um, by Moshe. And he describes it Physically as being flung up, up in the air. Yes, yeah. Right. And he describes it as this demeaning um, process of being flung in the air all about. And he at no point mentions that everybody had undergone this. And at no point does he mention that this is a symbolic gesture towards lifting towards God and sanctifying and giving unto God. And he kind of elides all of these. He sees it as an indignity. Exactly. Or presents it worse, presents it as an indignity. This could be the worst possible reading of this, right? That I don't know if we owe it to him to read it in the worst possible way. But one reading is to say, you know, he, he fails to understand that this is an elevation. A worse reading is he understands that that's an elevation, but chooses to convince the people listening to him instead of saying, look how we have all become closer to Hashem as a result of this. He chooses to, to turn this into something about him specifically being a face, being demeaned um, in order to implicitly um, 
increase the significance and, and standing of Moshe and Aro. You know, we're coming to the end of our time. We could go on and on, and I and I am so looking forward to continuing to do so. As you know, you and I, as we watch, as we watch this unfold. Um, but to come to a close, I want to go right to the beginning of our reading, to the sort of um, mysterious word or verbiage that's used right at the start of the Torah reading, and, and it's the jumping-off point for so many commentaries on this particular episode. Um, the opening word of the reading, vayikach, uh, the, the verb means then he took, the subject of the verb is korach, korach takes, vayikach korach, but an object of the verb is conspicuously missing in the verse. What does korach take? You know, some say the verse means korach took himself in the sense of separating himself from the community. Others theorize in something of a rabbinic anachronism that he took rhetoric, raised up rhetoric to pursue persuade the assembled Sanhedrin judges of his time in the sense of kehu imachem divarim, literally take words or arguments with you from Hosea, and still others opine that Korach got carried away, so to, the, so to speak, in the sense of Job chapter 15, ma'yi kachacha libecha, how does your heart take you away? So there's so much in the cipher of that word. And as we look from its vantage point at the present landscape of Israel, I think of how you've, you've said, Avishai, that, that Israel has failed to produce so far a new social contract to replace its outdated one. But you've also suggested online or in some of your writing that the incoming government, if it proves to be such, presents an opportunity in that regard. And so I guess my question is, what does it take? <laughs> or what, what, where does one have to take oneself? Or, or what does one have to take? Or who does one have to take? Or how does one have to take oneself in, in hand to seize what you see or to make the most of what you see as the opportunity of the moment, mm -hmm. if we can end on that possibly optimistic note? I, I would love to do that since I am optimistic. Um, in, you keep in me nature, optimistic, both, I'll say that. <laughs> both in nature and specifically. Um, I think... Um, to tie it back to this idea of taking. Um, Korach does not see leadership as a collective endeavor. He does not see um, politics as a collective endeavor. He sees it, rightly so to a degree, as a distributive, as an exercise in division, not in, in, um, not in multiplication or addition. Um, and there is something to that. Politics is about who gets what and when, um, um, and and on whose expense, at whose expense. Um, but there are also moments where it is both wise and just to see um, your former rivals, current allies, um, as benefiting from doing things together. And I think one of the things that this current government has the potential to do if it succeeds and in order to succeed. So it would be both the wise thing to do and the just thing to do, in my opinion, is to not set up a politics of division, but set up a politics that undoes a lot of, um, a lot of the decline in liberal democratic values 
or at least the rhetoric, the, the decline in the rhetoric and standing of liberal democratic values we've seen in recent years. So the existence or, or the mere force of having to collaborate with the parties across all, all across the political spectrum suggests that it might not be advisable to argue in favor of a real demos, a real people, the one who is, is barred out of decision, but actually look at a political majority and assert that political majority's right to rule um, in a democracy. That's one thing. The other is a peoplehood that goes beyond this original, um, some sense of peoplehood or some sense of legitimate, legitimate decision-making that goes beyond whoever has been recent, most recently defined as core to, Israeli, to the Israeli social contract and decision-making. And I think if they're able to tap into these values and amplify them, and, and make a case for them, this incoming government has the potential to both survive longer, but also do much good um, for the various groups and, and political movements within modern day Israel. That, that's a fabulous note on which to include, and I will add, come what may, uh, in, in, the, in the days and weeks ahead, it is, I think, an apt note um, to sound and, and hopefully one that we will hear resonating. You know, Avishai, you really are a person who, who sustains my optimism. I, I am kind of constitutionally allergic to despair when it comes to Israel, and in moments when that threatens to seem irrational, <laughs> Uh, that that allergy to despair. You are you are one of the people who, um, perhaps more than anyone else at Harvard, I will say, uh, it keeps me feeling not crazy in that allergy to despair when it comes to Israel. Um, so I personally am grateful to you, and on behalf of our community, for all the teaching that you uh, that you do. Um, and you know, you said recently that the that the habitual commentators on Israel right now are perhaps the ones with the fewest answers because we are streaking off the map of charted political territory and sort of moving off the chessboard of customary uh, strategies in Israeli politics. But um, in closing, I will say that I, I still find you as, as insightful and worthwhile to hear on this as ever. Um, so just gratitude to you and thanks. Um, and it's a joy to look into the into the text and into the current, uh, the landscape of the present day together with you, Avishai. Thank you. And thank you for, for forcing me to, to delve into that optimism. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much.